Okay, this morning, let's take our Bibles and turn to several passages, actually. Uh, we're going to look at 2 Thessalonians, and I'm still looking at the subject of the day of the Lord, and then even the passage we read this morning in Zechariah, we'll, want, we'll get there this morning also. But right now, uh, remember from uh, two passages of Scripture that uh, the Bible, from Second Peter, we saw that the day of the Lord are mentioned in verse 10 and 12, uh, the day of Christ, the day of uh, God, the day of the Lord. Uh, and that day is a specific day in which the Lord starts pouring out his wrath. Now, scriptures uh, not only admonish Christians to be ever watchful and ready uh, for the coming of Christ, but also a special blessing is conferred upon those who carefully study portions of scripture uh, that un- unveil the grand climax of God's plan for history, where even it says in Revelation, uh, blessed is he who reads and hears and heeds these things uh, which are written because the time is near. Christ is, is coming uh, for his church is, is coming near, and we do know that the repro- repercussions for, for not studying future things are far-reaching uh, because once people... It, Ignore or dispose, uh, if they ignore the word of God, then they are actually open up themselves to believing something that is false or that is not true or that is not God's plan. It it becomes easier uh, to believe a false narrative of a lie, especially if that narrative is repeated over and over and over again. People tend to believe it even though they don't check it out whether it's true or not. So just by way of review from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5, it says, do not, you do not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you of these things. And of course, these are the things of the day of the Lord that the people were reminded that he, they were already taught. And of course, uh, from last time, remember, somebody circulated a false letter saying that the day of the Lord had already come, which was not true. And so Paul is writing this letter to say, wait a minute, the day of the Lord uh, has not come because certain things have to happen in before that day takes place or right when that day takes place. Uh, and so he's saying that the falling of way and the revealing of the man of sin are signs which fall within the early stages of the day of the Lord uh, after it has begun and not prior to it. So there's a progression in the day of the Lord. And based on the findings of the Apostle Paul, uh, really, it's an encouragement for the readers to know that that the non-occurrence of these signs means that the day of the Lord had not happened yet or begun yet, and even till this day it has not begun yet. The, The day of the Lord is first triggered by the rapture of the saints in the air to meet the Lord and to be with him forever, which triggers the start of God's wrath And then, of course, identified by the apostasy, the falling away from the truth, from the word, and the revealing of the man of lawlessness. And then, uh, consequently, the coming of Christ for the church is followed by an extended period of time in which God releases all the judgments within the tribulation period. So God's children, the church, in, in whom he loves, will be caught up to himself before this pouring out of God's wrath in the seven-year tribulation period. Now, there is a timeline on the screen here of the events of, pre, it's called premillennial eschatology. Eschatology is end times. Premillennial is before uh, the end, the millennium. Uh, and, of course, there's three major views. There's amillennium, uh, which is no millennium. There's postmillennium, which happens afterwards, and then a premillennial. Uh, and so this is the premillennial uh, eschatology. And if you notice, by the, where the cross is at, this is the church age. We're living right there right now. Uh, and then in the church age, last until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And only God knows that. And then, of course, at that point, God raptures or takes the church out, his people out. And then that's the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period. Uh, which is called also the Day of the Lord. And the Day of the Lord extends through that 
right down through the till the end uh, there. And then, of course, after the seven-year tribulation period, there's the thousand-year reign of Christ, uh, who's present now on the earth in that reign. And then at the at the end, there will be the final rebellion of Satan, who's released now from prison, who was imprisoned during those thousand years. And then there's the new heaven and new earth. Now, all the views of this particular end-time teaching end in the new heaven and new earth, but all the details heading there. Sometimes people have different interpretations of those things. But this morning, uh, we I'm letting you know that I am hold to a premillennial eschatology, and that's the format of it. So from so far, we've examined in our text uh, the defiance yet to come in verse 2 and 3, and then the delay, there's a delay presently in effect. That means something's holding back uh, in verse 5 through 7, the mystery of iniquity. The mystery of iniquity is definitely working, but it's working behind the scenes and it's not yet fully revealed. And what's holding that back from last time we've learned that it's the Holy Spirit of God who fills the temple of God, which is the church. And the church, while present on this earth, is actually holding back evil. It's holding back iniquity. Even though there's a lot of evil, it's holding back what could be. And so someday when the church is taken out, then that evil just progresses and becomes worse and worse. So... Thinking about that, I just want to let you know there's a difference between the rapture of the church and the second coming. All right? The rapture of the church, the event, if you notice on the screen, the rapture, of, the rapture will be the rapture of believers. The believers will be caught up. The second coming will be the return of Christ to the earth. Uh, who is involved? Only believers in Jesus will be involved in the rapture. And then, of course, in the second coming, all humanity will be involved in that. And then what happens? Believers are caught away. Uh, as it says in Thessalonians, they'll be caught up to be with the Lord. And then at the second coming, Christ actually appears. And then what? where it happens, it happens in the air for the rapture of the church. The second coming, it will be on the earth on the Mount of Olives. That's when the Lord returns to the earth. As he left the Mount of Olives, he will return on the Mount, on the Mount of Olives. And then when it happens, it happens, the rapture happens before the wrath comes, before the seven-year tribulation where God pours out his wrath in the seal judgments, of the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments, all mentioned in the book of Revelation. And then, of course, the second coming comes after the wrath, at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, and then why it happens, the rapture happens to save believers from wrath, that eschatological end-time wrath, and then the second coming saves Israel from Antichrist, and then how it happens, uh, for the rapture, it's surprise. It's like a thief in the night, and the second coming is a climax of really clearly unfolding events that it's going to be well known because the Lord appears uh, and the whole world knows then. All right, so that's kind of like an, uh, an, a, a sense of what the difference is because when you're reading scripture, you may be able to kind of get mixed up and get those things mixed up. So those are making the division between those two things. All right, so getting back to Second Thessalonians, uh, we already looked at the des- deception and destruction. Uh, and so we, verse number 10 through 12, it says, And with all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they may be judged who do not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So... At that point, we, we see that in 11 and 12, there's going to be, uh, God's going to unfold the rest of that. So there's going to be, uh, at, actually, as I ended last time, we observed that Satan is not only behind this lawless one, but is the source of all his power to deceive. So that the man of lawlessness, 
He will act in harmony and in agreement with the working that is characteristic of Satan himself. He has power to perform signs, and these signs will direct one's attention during the tribulation period to the authenticity of his claims and the false wonders that will take place will at, at that the same time holding the spectator or the observer awestruck so as to produce a desire of veneration in this end time man of lawlessness who is energized by Satan himself. So Antichrist will do things similar to how God does things And the reason for this is because the man of lawlessness is a counterfeit Christ and does follow closely after Christ, what Christ has done. He does use his powers uh, for a specific reason, for a specific group of people. And if you look with me at verse number 10, who are those people in the middle of the verse? It says, for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So these deceptive workings of the lawless one is directed towards those who perish. And the reason is given for their perishing, for their ruin, for their present lostness. Here it is, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Putting it simply... They refuse to believe the gospel. They deliberately reject the divine offer of salvation that is the gospel in contrast with lying wonders and deceit. The purpose of the truth to those who obey it, who believe it, who receive it, is the salvation of their souls. But those who are unwilling to receive it to receive the love of the truth, to accept the love of the truth is therefore equivalent to disobeying the truth. And to those who accept it is equivalent to those who obey the truth. So not only did here in this passage, did they reject the love of the truth, the saving truth of the gospel, but they also manifested a disposition of distaste to the truth. That is, they did not want to seriously consider God's solution for sin, which is Christ. So keep in mind, the gospel is wrapped in God's initiative for providing a remedy for sinful man. They were rejecting the message of love from heaven to mankind. And they rejected the only solution to be made right with God. If you reject that, there is no other way of salvation. Now, let's just say they are drowning in an ocean of of their own sin, but they are holding on to some kind of beliefs. Everybody has some kind of beliefs. Now, just imagine they are floating along in a vast ocean of holding on to some piece of driftwood. Let's just say that the piece of driftwood represents the things that they have been trusting in to be right with God or to have eternal life or whatever they want to call it. Those things could be religious systems, many of those. Often those are backed up by good works. You have to do something to receive salvation. Some people just believe that it's an ordinance they were involved with or a sacrament they they took. Uh, or the baptism that they uh, were involved with, or just their own philosophy of life on what they conclude what the end is going to be, or even their own form of worship, which would be idolatry. All right, So they're holding on to something, some driftwood, something. They're believing something. Everybody believes something. Then let's suppose that the captain of a boat sees them and sees their problem and throws them a life preserver. They are immediately confronted with a choice. Do they let go of the piece of wood that represents all the things they have been trusting in and grab the life preserver, or do they just continue holding on to that piece of wood and ultimately they will die? Well, the uh, the reasonable thing 
for them to do so they don't die is to take it. Now let's go, let go of the wood, in other words, and grab the life preserver. But are you sure that this is the same as what the Bible teaches about saving faith? They were doing the best they could, drifting along, holding on to things they thought and hoped would give them eternal life. But the fact is they couldn't make it on their own efforts any more than they could hope to swim to shore because there is a further problem that the Bible mentions, that human beings are spiritually dead, unable to reach out and grab the life preserver, unable to do anything to save themselves. You see, Jesus Christ is the initiator of salvation. He is reaching out his powerful hand to love and to rescue sinners from the condemnation of their own sins. He's offering the life preserver of eternal life. He dies in their place. He takes the wrath of the Father for believers. He pays the full price to satisfy the justice of God. He dies by shedding his blood to wash away all sins, turning away the Father's wrath and moves us to being enemies, from being enemies of God to becoming friends of God, granting us the authority to become children of God. He offers the love of the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He offers Jesus alone as the rescuer, as the savior, There is no one else willing, able, or qualified to rescue lost sinners. And so true saving faith is always accompanied by repentance from sin. Turning from what you're trusting in to turn completely and totally in Jesus Christ. Repentance is really agreeing with God that you are sinful. Confessing your sins to him, making a conscious choice to turn from sin and pursue Christ in loving obedience to him. It's not enough to believe certain facts about Jesus or what he did. Even Satan, the Bible says, and his demons believe in the true God, but they don't love him. They don't obey him. See, true saving faith always responds in obedience to the gospel. And as God the Father draws a person, grants them faith and repentance, makes them alive to believe. So God must judge sin. The only way we could be saved from that judgment is a personal trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, rose from the dead to pay the penalty of lost sinners. So that means that true saving faith always comes an end really comes to the end of themselves. Their self-reliance, their self-righteousness, and they turn and trust absolutely in Christ for forgiveness of sins, for moral and spiritual renewal, for eternal life. Remember, salvation must not only be granted by God, it must be accepted or received. And that's what repentance is, to turn from what you're trusting in, to trust in Christ. Have you? Have you received the free offer of eternal salvation today? Can you say, if you were to die today, you know where you're going? But if the offer of the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ comes to a sinner needing rescuing, and they refuse it, If they refuse God, if they refuse Christ, if they ignore the cross and his substitutionary sacrifice, if they turn a deaf ear to God's good news of free grace, what's left? Well, what is left is for them to believe a lie. And a lot of people, that's what they do. They lie to themselves. And in this case, in this passage, they believe the lie. So what God, 
what does God do when people refuse the love of the truth? Well, he gives them what they prefer. What that means is refusing to believe God's gospel brings it its own consequences and its own judgment. So a person who heard the gospel and rejected Christ in this age of grace, where God has grace and mercy being poured out for anyone who would come and believe this message of truth in Christ Jesus, if they hear it and they reject that, they will not receive him in the awful tribulation period. So when it finally comes and the group of people go into that period and the church is taken out of here, what is God's response to the rejectors of truth heading into the tribulation and in the tribulation? Here's his response. Look at verse number 11. Divine delusion. It says, for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. God does that. It says, for what reason? Points back to their distaste for, their rejection of the truth. Actually, the phrase translated deluding influence, in the Greek term is really the word energia, carries the meaning of supernatural working or activity or operative power or energy, which carries, really really, really translated, meaning some have translated, working of error, terrible result of willful rejection of the truth or willful ignoring of the truth. What is it? That they should believe a lie. That's the contemplated result. Just like Romans 1 25 says, for they exchange the truth of God for a lie. And what do they do next? Worship and serve the creature rather than creator, the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. See, there's no neutral ground. There's no emptiness there. Either you believe the truth or you believe something false. Whatever that may be. See, they exchange. There's always got to be this exchange from what is true to something that is not true. So those who have rejected the truth, God sends to them a work of error that is exchanged for the truth. So God sends them confusion so that they cannot distinguish between what is true and what is a lie. In other words, God gives sinners over to the very sin and error they have embraced. So here's a definite judicial act of God who gives the wicked over to the evil which they have deliberately chosen. You go to Romans chapter 1. What do you find in Romans chapter 1? God gave them over, what? To the lust of their hearts. God gave them over to what? To the degrading passions uh, of their heart. God gave them over to the depraved mind, to those things which are not proper being filled with all unrighteousness. God gave them to that. We live in a day where God's giving the nation over to those things. It's taking over. This crazy mindset in our country is no mistake. The mystery of iniquity is working very diligently to prepare the world for this time. But Christians cannot be deceived. That's the point. We cannot be deceived. Even when you go back to the Old Testament, like in Psalm 81, where the same thing's going on when God's speaking to Israel. He says to them in Psalm 81, but my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me. So what did God do? So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart. That's what God does. You want to live like that? You want to believe like that? Go ahead. But in doing so, in the tribulation, there's no other chance to be saved. So they believe what is false. They believe the lie. And what is the, what is the lie? The lie in Thessalonians here was the claim of the Antichrist to be the God, a God greater than all gods. They believe the lie that if 
it is the truth, they want to believe in God, but not according to revealed truth, the scriptures, according to the signs that point to the reality of his claim, keeping the rejecter of truth spellbound to, uh, in admiration of the lawless one as being God himself, as it's said already in verse number 4 of chapter 2, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God and object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So this is what's going to take place. So now you have a world who's not believing the gospel, who now has the deluding influence of God. There is no hope for them in the tribulation, apart from God's divine intervention that he sends into the tribulation to bring the truth to those who would believe, and mostly that attention is going to be on the nation of Israel. So they're rejecting really exposes them for who they really are and what they really delight in. Therefore, a a moral consequence falls upon them, as we have already gathered in, uh, well, if if you look in chapter 1, verse number 8, across the page, it says they're dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of God. Our Lord Jesus. So the, right there, the, the proclamation of the gospel is a call for obedience. If you, if you decide to ignore it or reject it, that's disobedience. So those whom the light of the gospel has shown and whom the sound of the gospel has come but have not yet yielded obedience so as to heartily trust in Christ as their Savior upon his terms, meaning that all Christless persons who have heard of Christ and yet have not believed will be the chief malefactors in the day of judgment. And Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but what do, they, what do they do obey? Unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. See, they obey something. But it's something that will just condemn them further. So because they refuse and reject Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, what's left? Well, look at verse number 12 of chapter 2. In order that all may be judged who did not believe the truth. So divine judgment, in other words. Divine judgment is the end result. The only thing left for God to do is to judge them. No one will escape his judgment. See, man brings upon himself the ultimate judicial consequence of his chosen course of action. So part of God's whole plan is is to show this rebellion for what it really is. To let people have their fill of sin and allow it to run its course. Because the wages of sin is what? Death, right? Not only physical death, spiritual death, but eternal death, second death. Eventually, God will put an end to all this. In his work, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce. He says in that book that heaven is where the people who say, God, your will be done, spends eternity. Hell is a place where God has finally said to an unrepentant rebel, fine, your will be done. Now you suffer the consequences of your own will. And believe me, I'd rather have God make the choice than me. David proved that in the Old Testament when God gave him a choice on what to prove, this, this, or this. And he says, Lord, Lord, I'll go with you. Even though I don't have judgment, I'll go with you because God is merciful. Now, eventually, God must put his foot down and squash this age-old rebellion. The Bible really says when that will happen. That's going to happen really 
in the battle of Armageddon. That's at the end of the tribulation period. Now, what I'd like you to do is let's, let's take our Bibles. I'm going to take a little left turn here. Take your Bible and turn to a, a Ezekiel chapter 38. Ezekiel chapter 38. And as you turn there, I want to just show you the two battles that will take place in the tribulation period. The two battles that will take place in the tribulation period. It, it does give us a sense on what's going on in the tribu- tribulation. Uh, and the first battle, because it's going to be, these battles are going to be against Israel, God's people. Remember, they're in their land. The tribulation has started. Israel's pretty much in the first part of it believing that this man of sin is, is the Messiah. So they're trusting him. And all of a sudden you have this battle come about in Ezekiel chapter 38. And this verse battle of the tribulation is called the battle of Gog and Magog. Look at verse 1 of Ezekiel 38. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog and the prince of Rosh and Meshach and Tubal and prophesy against him. Verse 3, say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal. And then in verse number 5, it says, Persia, Ethiopia, and put with them, all of them, with seals and helmet. And then down to verse 8. After many days you will be summoned, and in the latter years you will come into the land that is, is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. But its people were brought out from the nations, and they are living securely All of them, verse number 9, you will go up. You will come like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land. You and all your troops and many peoples with you. Now, this is the battle of Gog and Magog. Now, as we look at that scripture, Rosh, or uh, would people believe that is Russia. Meshach is Moscow. Uh, and then other cities in Russia. And then down to verse 5, Persia is Iran. Ethiopia is northern, the nations of northern Africa. So these nations gather against Israel. Now, it's interesting, a straight line uh, due north of Jerusalem is Moscow. And the Bible does talk about the northern nations. So Israel... At this particular point, she believes she's going to be protected because of a treaty she made with the Antichrist, but she's not protected. Daniel said this, and he will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, one week being seven years, in the middle of the week, at the three and a half year mark, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, meaning that he allowed Israel to build the temple, the tribulation temple. They're sacrificing in, a, in, in, in it, and that's what they have already their plan. They have already planned to do all that. It's already set in motion, all right. And yet they, he comes in and he stops it, and then he it says on the wing of abomination he will come. One will come who makes desolate until a complete destruction. One that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Of course, that is when it says in Thessalonians, he takes his seat there on the temple, in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So at that particular point, everybody's, all the enemies are in confusion, but something's going on with the people of Israel. Now, what happens there is in Ezekiel chapter 38, look at verse 21. The Lord fights for Israel. God throws Israel's enemies into confusion. It says in verse number 21, I will call for a sword against him 
On all my mountains, declares the Lord God, every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and with blood, I will enter into judgment with him, and I will rain on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him a torrential rain with hailstones, fire, and brimstones. Now, here's the battle, and it's a fierce battle, but God steps in and fights for Israel at this point. And it takes Israel seven months to clean up after this battle. It's so destructive. In the meantime, signs and wonders of the false prophet are continuing, as it says in Thessalonians 2.9, along with the economic stronghold his system has on the world. You can't buy, you can't sell, you can't eat, you can't do anything unless you have the mark of the beast. So he has a stronghold on the world. Also, the miraculous healing of the mortal wound that Antichrist received during an assassination attempt. In other words, again, a mock resurrection takes place where it tells us in Revelation 13, verse 2 and 3, and the beast which I saw was like, verse 3 and 4, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worshipped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? In other words, he performs a mock resurrection. He's fatally wounded. He comes back to life. What better thing to do than get the attention of the world. That's what he does at this point. But the problem is that the Jewish people are not believing it anymore. As soon as he sat in the temple and uh, desecrated it by claiming himself to be God, they began to turn from him, turn away from him. His blasphemy in the temple where he declared himself to be God makes the Jews see the light. And they begin to turn away from him. And so Antichrist thought that the federation of Gog and Magog would do in the Jewish nation. But it did not, because God stepped in on their behalf. So the man of sin and the lawless one, uh, which is the same, puts his ultimate plan into motion to annihilate the Jews. And it's called the second battle of the tribulation happening at the end of the tribulation, the campaign of Armageddon. And we find uh, in that, of course, in, in other passages of Scripture, but here, Armageddon, the, heart, the first part of that word means mount, and Megiddo means hill. It's really, it overlooks the valley of Jezreel, and Jezreel Valley has much historical significance in Scripture. Uh, many things have happened there. But on the plain of Armageddon is the gathering place of the armies of Antichrist against Israel. And that campaign of Armageddon can be seen as moving forward in, in about four stages. The first stage would be Antichrist armies come against Israel. Then the kings of the east, the Persian and the Arab kings, join in the Confederacy against Israel, and these armies gather on the plains of Megiddo right in the middle of Israel, in the country. So they're already there, right in the middle of Israel. And then the second stage is the destruction of Babylon in modern-day Iraq happens probably as the Persians and the Arabs move forward towards Israel. That could have taken place there. And then the third stage is this. They attack Jerusalem. Terrible bloodshed as Jerusalem suffers horrible de defeat. Now, I said we were going to look back at Zechariah, the passage we read. Turn there to Zechariah. Look at chapter 14 and verse number 2. Because in verse number 2, it says there... In Zechariah 14, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. 
and the city will be captured and the houses plundered and the woman the women ravished or raped and half of the city exiled and the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city now this is a very devastating situation for Israel because it is the antichrist plan to wipe this nation forever off the planet he's gotten most of the world against them. So what's Israel's only hope? You know what their, their only hope is? To call on God. That's it. There, there's no other way out. There's no other way out. Well, look in chapter 12 of Zechariah, verse 10. So Israel calls out to God for deliverance. It says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. So they will, they're going to call out to, for God to help, and Jesus comes, and he fights against those nations for his people Israel. And notice in verse number 3 of Zechariah chapter 12. I just read chapter 12, verse 10. But in chapter 14, verse 3 and 4, it says, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. And when he fights on a day of battle, in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west, by a very large valley, and so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and another half toward the south to make a way for his people to escape. And what happens? That Jesus comes and he delivers them as they call on him, as he always said in the Old Testament that he would do. So Jesus comes with power. He comes with great glory. He comes with his angels. He comes with the the sound of the shofar or the trumpet of God. And that's what's recorded in Matthew 24, or Matthew 24 and 25, where it talks about these days. It says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds and from one end of the sky to the other. And he's described in Revelation as coming as a righteous judge who wages war, that his eyes are a flaming fire, that his on his head are diadems, and that his name that is written no one knows except himself, that his clothes are dipped in blood, and that his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed with fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses as he comes in defense of his people. And then, of course, that is the second coming of Christ, where he comes and finally uh, sits, comes into the world, and that's the millennium, which starts the millennium. So Jesus, with the power of his mouth, and like a thermonuclear warhead, comes against the armies of Antichrist, and Jesus ends the war. Well, if you're right there in Zechariah, look at verse 12, what it says in verse 13. It says, now, now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongue will rot in their mouth. And it will come about in that day that the great panic from the Lord will fall on them and they will seize one another's hand and, and the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another. Complete chaos. So the true God-man, Jesus, will bring the man Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, to a swift end. And the power that proceeds from the Lord Jesus is no match at all whatsoever for Antichrist, where, where it says back in Thessalonians, then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth 
and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. See, this is what the Lord does for his people. So, getting back to Thessalonians chapter 2. So turn back there as we come to an end there. The only thing left for God to do is judgment. But what he does now is he exposes what they really love. In verse number 12, he says this, in order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So they did love something. They loved their sin. So here is the heart of the matter, that God exposes the true enjoyment of their heart. And remember, the heart is not the thing that pumps in your your center of your chest. It's the mind, it's the emotion, it's the will. It's who a person really is. And he exposes their heart. That one day everything will be exposed and brought to the light of God's infallible scrutiny. That those who fear God and confess their allegiance to Christ have nothing to fear. But those who don't fear God and did not believe, They have everything to fear. So God exposes here the true affections of their heart. They took pleasure, it says here, in wrongdoing, in evil, in sin, in injustice. Just like the Gospel of John says, men love darkness rather than light. Why? For their deeds are evil. They don't like the light because the light exposes their wicked heart. So do you see how clear it is that if you do not obey the gospel, you obey something else. If you do not love the truth, you do indeed delight in something else. And there is no neutrality. There is no neutral position at all. There are only two alternatives when the gospel goes out. Either you believe the truth or you believe a lie. There's no in-between. Each of those have their own effectual results. So those perishing have no love for the truth, therefore are vulnerable to error and judgment. So having actively and willfully rejected God, they enjoy fellowship with the devil they will very naturally follow after Antichrist because their heart beats with his heart. In rebellion against the true and living God, in rebellion against his plan, in rebellion against his people. So I pray, really, that the Holy Spirit may sweetly whisper to your heart, if you sit here today and you have not trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior yet, today would be the day that you do so and not put it off one more second. Because if Christ comes and the tribulation starts, you're done. Now is the acceptable day of salvation. Today is. But if you are a child of God, and you are growing in your love for Jesus, which you should be, and making yourself ready for his return, then you keep yourself on guard. Keep sober-minded. Keep your your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to us and has been brought to us in the word of God. But what if he comes today? Will Christ coming, what will it mean to you? Will it mean comfort or tragedy? Will it mean rejoicing or remorse? Will it mean heaven or hell? The real issue is this. Have you truly believed God and put your personal trust in his son, Jesus Christ, the Savior? Now is the time to do so. Tomorrow may be too late. But also for those who believe, are you making yourself ready? 
Donald Green Barnhouse told a story that he read in a London newspaper about a divorce case heard in the courts in his city, in that city. It was about a wealthy young man who had gone away uh, to war soon after he was married. His new bride wrote him of the demanding schedule she had to keep as a nurse in a certain hospital. Apologizing for her infrequent writing, she explained that she was spending a great deal of time with the wounded. Some months later, when the man was scheduled for leave to go back home, a friend suggested, don't announce you're coming. Slip in quietly. Arriving in London, the young man went directly to the hospital to see his wife. She was not there. He then went to their home, where he was told by his servants, oh, she will probably be at the tea dance at the Ritz. Going there, he found her in the company of another man. How shocking and ashamed she was at her husband's sudden appearing. Now, when our Lord returns, we won't want to be found flirting and preoccupied with the world or the things of the world. Actually, the more we move closer to Christ and loving him, the world and its glitter and gold grows dim. Right? But expecting Christ to return at any moment and living that way has a tremendous purifying effect upon our lives. Making yourself every day you wake up ready for his return. Today may be the day. Remember, he's coming as a thief. Are we ready? So our hearts should be focused on Jesus, the one in whom we love. And then our lives will be purified by the desire to be like him and to see him face to face. So what if he comes today? What if he comes tomorrow or this week or this year? Are we ready? Are we staying ready? I pray that we are. And the only way, and this is the admonition of Scripture, to be ready, right? We don't know the time or the hour or the year. The Bible says don't set dates. Just be ready. Just be ready. And you'll be fine. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, again, Lord, your word shows us things that will take place. But it also exemplifies for us, Lord, and magnifies for us the, the, the gospel and the power of the gospel. And it also shows us, Lord, your plan will go forward. Nothing can hinder it. But you are for your people. You will take your church out before that time. And Lord, you will direct your attention to Israel and bring them into the fold once more. Lord, thank you for what you've given us in the word of God. We know you've given us enough to be ready, to look towards you, to trust you in all that we do every day of our lives. And Lord, I pray that we would be your witnesses, your ambassadors, and that we'd be able to share the light of the gospel to those who haven't heard it yet and admonish and encourage those who do know Christ to continue on, to press on in the faith and not give up, even though tribulation may come. So, Lord, we thank you again for exposing us to the reality of your plan. And I pray this this morning in Christ's name. Amen.